Some of you are old enough to remember a time before there was such a thing as Amazon.com. Right? Some of you. I love Amazon.com, don't get me wrong, but there, there was something about um, the day when I wanted to buy a book and I had to like search for the book. I had a book list, I had a wish list. As a seminary student, uh, we had, you know, even one of our assignments was to, to come up with your wish list of the top five commentaries on every book of the Bible for your wish list and why you do all this research. And so I would go to the bookstore and I would go frequently, the used religious bookstore, Pasadena, California. I would go about every week. My wife wished I wouldn't go every week because I'd spend so much money, but I was building a library. So I had my list of commentaries and theological books because you have to have a library as a pastor. So I told her it was ministry. But so and we would go every single week. We would make the drive to Pasadena. It's a well-known bookstore, well-known even around the country. That's what they specialized in. And it was kind of fun, kind of exciting. And one of my very favorite books I have here. I was so thankful way back in ancient history, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away before Amazon.com when book shopping was fun. I found this book. And I was so happy. And I don't remember who was with me. Uh, but we were all excited because we were finding all kinds of good books. Now, we were there the week before, but they'd gotten in like the mother load shipment. They had all of these books. They were awesome. And we were like, you know, giddy schoolgirls finding all of these exciting theological books. They had one thing in common. This isn't not why it's one of my favorite books, by the way, but I had to tell you the story. The one thing in common was they all had the same stamp from the same Bible college. Because a local Bible college president said, I had enough. I've had enough of our students and graduates starting to believe in what's called Reformation theology. And so all of these great Reformation theology books are there. And I kind of love this one. It has sentimental value to me because it says the name of the school. And then in three different places, it's stamped withdrawn, withdrawn withdrawn. I like irony. So it's just one of my favorite books because it's a great book and it was changing people's minds. It was teaching things like John chapter 10, Jesus lays his life down for his sheep and he loses none of them. Well, that, that's that reformed theology stuff. And so too many people were believing that. Never mind John 10. Too many people were believing that. So book ban. I like having books that are banned, right? Dangerous ideas. Kind of exciting. It's actually not why it's my favorite book, though. It's written by John Owen. It's super hard to read. Owen had a brilliant mind writing in the 17th century, but super, super hard to read. People write books and they, they update them so we, we can read them easier. But I love the title of the book. It's what makes it my favorite book. I like the content, but I love the title of the book. And the title of the book, I'll hold it up for you so none of you can see it. Uh, <laughs> The title of the book is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Just think about it. Even if you don't like John Owen, even if you don't like supposed Reformed theology, just think about the greatness of the title if you're a Christian. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That is a grand, grand statement. 
the death of death in the death of Christ. See, death is a terrible thing, right? Death is not natural. It's not natural. Death is terrible. Death is something that plagues all of us. Death and the suffering that comes with us. First Corinthians says, death is our enemy. Death is awful. Death is terrible. Death is because of sin. But because of Jesus and what he came here to do and what he succeeded in doing, we have that reality of the death of death in the death of Christ. Isn't it awesome? It is an awesome, awesome, awesome reality. I don't recommend running out and buying the book because you'll say, what in the world did I get myself into? But I do recommend that you read the gospel according to John. And we're going to do that today in the 13th chapter. Um, John 10, by the way, is really where Owen focuses, but we've already focused on that. That Jesus succeeds. He doesn't just try. He is victorious. And therefore, he's trustworthy. The death of death and the death of Christ. And we're in chapter 13. And where we are, the latter part of chapter 13, studying John's account of what Jesus does, Jesus is getting really close to going to the cross. Okay? It's the very end of his life. And in our section today, he's going to talk about going to the cross and suffering and dying and being raised again. And he, he connects that to, to glorification, to being glorified, which is kind of strange, right? Someone who's honored is glorified. A king or a queen is glorified. Royalty, glorified. Famous people, they're glorified. But Jesus, because what he does succeeds, because he does accomplish the death of death, which is what he's sent to do, he speaks of it as a glorification. See, that's kind of ironic. Crucifixion is glorifying never. Unless you're Jesus and you're doing it for a purpose, the purpose you were sent here by your father to accomplish, the purpose you came to accomplish. And so just keep that in mind as we hear from Jesus to talk about the glory of his suffering, which is really strange, unless you're accomplishing the death of death, which is what you need. It's what I need. That's why you need a savior. And so do I. And then he's going to start explaining. And this isn't going to end in chapter 13. It'll be in 14 and 15 and 16, but he's going to start explaining to his followers what's going to be happening, what they they can expect, why he's going to be gone, how to act while he's gone, and we're going to get some of that today, okay? He's going to say he's going to be glorified, he's going to explain some of it, and he's also going to give us some instruction. How do we act? How are we supposed to act if we're trusting in the one who provides the death of death? So, John chapter 13, let's just go ahead and dive in and begin as we see and hear Jesus say these words in verse 31, okay? In verse 31, look there with me if you would. When he had gone out, that's referring to Judas. We looked at that last time. Judas is going to betray Jesus. Jesus has made that clear. He says, what you do, do quickly. It's a heavy-hearted time for Jesus. It's a difficult time. But he does say here in 31, when he, Judas, had gone out, the betrayer, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Son of Man from Daniel. It's actually a a prestigious title. 
Okay? Not emphasizing humanity, actually emphasizing dignity. So now is the Son of Man glorified, honored, lifted up, exalted. Now is the Son of Man glorified. That, that seems pretty straightforward. And God is glorified in Him. Then 32 says, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now, if you only read those verses, you'd just be like, what? What is this about? This sounds kind of cool and nice and spiritual, but you might not really know. But what, what we have is in the context of betrayal, end of life. He keeps saying, my hour's not come, my hour's not come, my hour's not come. And now he just said before this, it, it's the hour. Everything's been leading, leading, leading toward his crucifixion. Resurrection, ascension. And he's saying, now. Now is the culminating high point. Now is when it's going to be accomplished. And this is going to mean glory for me. This is going to mean glory for my father. Because that's why he sent me here, is to accomplish redemption. And I came here to accomplish redemption. And and it's it's now. It's on target. It's on task. It's, It's going to happen. The hour has come. It's, it's as if that, that betrayal of Jesus by Judas just opens up the, the floodgates and now, now the cards all fall. This is it. It's happening. And remember, Jesus commanded Judas, what you do, do quickly. Doesn't mean Jesus was happy. Doesn't mean Jesus was smiling or laughing. No, as we saw last time, this is an anguishing thing. Think about what he's going to face. Not only the punishment by the punishment experts, the Romans, but the wrath of his father. So we've got to remember, this is, this is terrible, this is awful, but it's spoken of as glorifying. Think about how weird Christianity is. Oh, all religions are the same. To have an eternal son sent here, volunteered to come here, and then have him only say what's true. To always be right and then be crucified and have him say that's glorifying. You, you can't make this stuff up, folks. But the reason it's glorifying is because it's successful. It's redemptive. It's the death of death. It's awesome. I mean, I, I, I makes me want to be a preacher. I never wanted to be a preacher my whole life. One of our VBS teachers just told me this morning that one of her uh, children who was visiting from another place uh, told her in whatever terms he didn't like the gospel. And I said to her, you must have been clear. (laughs) And I said, and watch, he'll become a Christian. (laughs) Right? You can't make this up. But all of a sudden, it it doesn't make sense. But it makes Christianity different than, than, than anything else. The religion that takes its king and has him crucified. In fact, he actually came here to be crucified. It's because he's providing atonement. Atonement means satisfaction, by the way. To satisfy justice. We sin. We should be paying. We don't pay. He paid if we trust in him. 
It's pretty amazing stuff. Maybe one more thing before we move on to the next section. Um, in John, we've been seeing he's faithful. That's why we have faith in him, trust in him, because he's trustworthy. He's referred to as a son, and he's a loyal son. He's referred to in servant terms. He's the loyal servant. Um, we just saw him serve his disciples, but he's been serving the the will of his father. And language experts, I have to admit to you, I'm not smart enough to, to, to see it, but language experts, at least, New Testament, Old Testament experts say, the verbiage he uses here, this honor, this glorification uh, language that he uses here, is the language that's used in Isaiah. And remember in Isaiah, we have so much that, that reflects John and Isaiah and how they interplay and go back and forth. And they point out Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49.3 says, And he said to me, You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. And language experts say, I don't know what it takes to be a language expert, but I, I think I had to take three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew and I can hardly speak English. But, but people who know a lot so it's, 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 it's a reflection of, of the very thing that's said in the Hebrew text in Isaiah. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified because the servant is loyal. He does what he was sent to do. But what's interesting about that text is I skipped a word. It says in Isaiah 49.3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But they proved to not be altogether faithful. It's in anticipation of one who would be. As Carson says in his commentary, Jesus transcends Israel's role. In his impending death and exaltation, Jesus is glorified. He accomplishes what they didn't accomplish perfectly. Okay, now we're going to move on, but you have to say, all right, this is all interesting and fascinating. He told us some things about language and the death of death. What should I do? Here's what you should do at this point in time is you should be thankful. It's called worship. It's called gratitude. God, this is great. If he's glorified, that means he succeeds. Right? If Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to stay dead like every other religious leader who's ever walked the face of the earth, he wouldn't be speaking in terms of glorified. It's only because he goes and dies and is resurrected and ascends that he can speak of terms of being glorified. It works. And here's what's important in your life. His success, his glorification is the key to your glorification. Because if you're trusting in Christ, he's called the firstborn from the dead. See, he's our hope. And not just hope and hope. He's our hope because he's raised from the dead. So, I'm going to stop here and, and you guys just worship. I'm going to watch. No, this is from the heart, right? And we worship God in a lot of different ways. It's not just music. It's gratitude and thankfulness. And it makes me want to do the right thing because of what Christ has done for me. And, and changes everything. 
Now let's move on. Some vital information, some questions answered, some things Jesus needs to talk to his disciples about. Then it says in verse 33, little children, which does mark a bit of a change from the way he's been talking to the religious leaders. It's even warmer than the way he's generally been talking to his disciples. I would suggest to you it's because Judas is now out. Little children, he's going to use these, these closer terms of affection. You, 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 he's not their father, but he's speaking in paternal, caring, providing kinds of ways. And he's going to provide. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to talk about where he's going in a little bit, but let's at least say, see that two different times he said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he didn't mean just the Jews in general, because the disciples are Jews. Jewish religious leaders who opposed him. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He also said things like, you will die in your sins. Here Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Kind of like I told the Jews. But Jesus didn't say to the Jewish religious leaders, my little children. And he's going to go on to say in chapter 14, I'm going, you can't come, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's, it's markedly different. It's very different. It's the same, same thing. It's the same except different, right? <laughs> it's the same except different because he's always been saying he's going. This isn't plan B. But the way he's treating his own is different. It'll come up again in a few verses, but let's keep going. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. So now he's going to tell them what he expects of them. He's going to leave. Here's what he wants them to do. Here's what he wants us to do if we want to apply it. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. I'm leaving you, but I need to tell you something. Here's what you're responsible to do. Here. here here's my question for you. Is it a new commandment that we're supposed to love? No, sometimes we think it is and we just reflect our forgetfulness. It's all over the Old Testament. It's the primary command in the law. Love. Love God, love neighbor. So it's not a new commandment to say we, human beings should love. That's as old as it gets. What's new? What's new? What's new is that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. That's the new part. It's a special kind of love for believers that imitates Christ's love for his own. In the, in the Bible, love is used in different ways. This is why sometimes teachers draw a circle and they have love as the circle and within the circle there's different kinds of love. Um, there's a general love for hum, humankind. We're supposed to love one another. Everyone is supposed to do that. Uh, there, Jesus teaches that we're to love our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're supposed to do that. But this is another unique kind of love. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus like these disciples, are supposed to love other disciples, not to the exclusion of other love, but it's a special kind of love, and it's special because it's a reflection of the way He loved us. This is super important, right? How did he love us? 
think back to the fact that, well, why don't you go ahead and look? How about, how, we, we don't want to miss this. How about 13.1? How does Jesus love us? So it's for fellow believers. How did he love us? 13.1 is so good at the end there. So this is our context, so we can interpret it. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, to the end or to the very end. And I wrote in my margin, and Peter will deny him. Christ's love for his own that we're supposed to imitate, that you're supposed to imitate if you're a follower of Jesus, is a love that would love him to the very end. Would love not based upon their faithfulness. This is where the rub comes, right? The rub comes because I want to love you if you do the right thing. But that's not the kind of love that Christ gave to his disciples. They weren't deserving. Before they were disciples, they weren't deserving after they were disciples. But he says, you disciples, you eleven, special love, you love one another. That's what he calls believers to do. That's the challenge, right? It's the greatest challenge you face. It's the greatest challenge I face. We're, we're called to, to, remember we could say, it, and it cost him something. In fact, it cost him a lot. It was more than emotion. It was more than a feeling. It was more than a thought. It's the thought that counts. Jesus loved by doing something. In John, John 15, I think it is, he'll talk about this again. And no greater love has someone if they lay their life down for their friend. So, this is the big one. Jesus is going to leave and what does he want us to do in the meantime? Well, he wants us to do other things. But this is a big one. We're supposed to love each other. Why is it that Christians are some of the worst people at this? As, as the saying goes, Christians shoot their own. Figuratively speaking. I don't know. My best guess, I'm not here to give, all, all, give you all the answers, is we quickly lose sight of how Christ loved us. Because of bad theology, because of forgetfulness. But we forget. We think Jesus came and saw how cute we were and cuddly we were and adorable we were and just really trying, but we needed the kind of extra boost. And, and we forget that he said no one is good except God. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have. Servant love where he washed their feet. So the best thing I can do, I think, because I don't have all the answers, I can exhort you and say, this is what Jesus says. Do this. And when you don't, stop. But I, but I can say one sure way to forget 
is by assuming the cross, assuming the gospel, forgetting who you are apart from Christ, who you were before Christ. God loved you when you were unlovely. And so now when I don't deserve your love, you're supposed to love me anyway and it's a mark of a Christian, right? This is hard. Super hard. I mean, I could go off on the tangent of, but this is, this is typically how it goes. This is, this is most counseling. I'll do the right thing as soon as she does. I'll do the right thing as soon as he does. I mean, it's just how, it's how it is. It's how we're wired. The thing that's supposed to transcend all of this for us Christians is we've experienced a love that wasn't conditioned upon us. We, we've experienced a love that was conditioned upon the commitment of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. And so now, now, you, you can forgive, you can love, and so can I. Oh, he, and how about this? He's going to talk about the Spirit being sent. And the Spirit's going to come and the Spirit gives power, supernatural power. So we're not spiritually dead. He's going to get to that in chapter 14. And then he's going to get in chapter 15 how we're united to Christ. We're united, the vine and the branches. And so we actually have life. We actually have power. I, I, Pat Abendroth can never say, I can't if I'm a Christian. And neither can you. So if you're feeling guilty now, awesome. If you need to feel guilty. But you say, help me. The best way I can help you is to, to urge you and encourage you to, to, to quote the Apostle Paul, to remember Jesus Christ. And to be in awe of Him and what He's done and allow that to then be a catalyst to allow you to think the right way. Thirty-five then says, By this all people know, will know, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And remember, it's the kind of love he talked about. That tells us, 35 tells us that this is something that, that should be able to be seen. It's observable. Before we move on, just remember, Jesus loved and loves you when you do not deserve it. Jesus loved you at great cost. Jesus gave you his spirit to enable you to love. And finally, remember this. This is supposed to come as a result of Christ's love for you. Don't, don't, don't turn the gospel on its head. Right? This comes out of Christ's love for you. First, and because you experience his love, then this is expected and this comes. Otherwise, we have a different religion. Let's move on. 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. So Jesus is saying a little bit more now, but you will follow after. C 
context tells me he will follow after because he will die and he will be raised. You, you can't come now. You can't come now because I'm doing this as the Lamb of God. I'm doing this as the substitute. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to be the one who provides the death of death. So you can't follow now, but you, you, you will follow later. John 14, just to think ahead, I go, he doesn't elaborate yet, but, but we know Jesus is going there. I, where I'm going, I am going to prepare a place for you, is where I'm going. So we're going to get to that. But for now, let me just encourage you by that statement at the very end of 36, but you will follow afterward. Just just love that. You will follow afterward. Now, we don't like the death part. But Jesus is glorified in our context. You will follow afterward. You will follow afterward. You will follow. That's, a, that's, a, that's like a gospel promise. This is great. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. If you're connected to Christ by faith, you will follow afterward. He doesn't leave them. You will follow afterward. That's hope, not hope and hope, but there's a confidence, there's a certainty. Now 37. Brace yourself for this one as we wrap this up. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. What do you do with that? Think about it. I want to come with you, and I want to come with you now. He doesn't even know what he's talking about, right? But I'll lay my life down for you. What do you think? You think he's a piece of work, right? We say, oh, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? We say, and this is fine. This is good. But maybe just, just right before we totally throw him under the bus. Sorry, bus drivers. Um, right before the train wreck. Oh, sorry, those of you. <laughs> See, I say these things, and then those of you who do these things for a living are like, would you please stop that? So I do it anyway, because I'm not very loving. Just kidding. Where were we? I don't know. Oh, but Peter, right? We, want to just, we just want to trash Peter. But maybe, maybe let's give him a little opportunity, and let's read him in the best light. The guy who's got this zeal, right? And he does seem to act and speak before he thinks it through. But how about this? Jesus did just say, I want you to love like I've loved. I want this to be radical and extreme and loyal and faithful. Jesus just said he was going to love to the end, the very end. And Peter says, I'll, I'll die for you. I think we should at least give him the benefit of the doubt there and say, while he does not know what he's talking about, while it's so ironic that he says he's the substitute and he has no idea really of what it means to be the substitute, Jesus, he is, he is seemingly trying to do what Jesus said. I'm going to love you like that. I like that. I really like that. Short-sighted, but good zeal. Good form, good form. 38, let's wrap up. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? 
I can't even imagine what's going on in Jesus' mind when he says this. He knows exactly what's about to happen. Truly, truly, earnestly, soberly, seriously, earnestly, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Not good. But because of what Jesus will do for him as the substitute, he will never stop experiencing Christ's loyal love who loves them to the very end. Because that's the kind of love that Christ has for his own. It is the death of death and the death of Christ. And isn't it also interesting that we'll learn later in John that Peter actually does die for Jesus, but not as a substitute, not in a saving sense. He dies for Jesus because he dies a martyr's death, and it's talked about in John's Gospel account. So there's so many different angles, so many different things happening in these things that are said. Because he will die for Jesus not to earn something. But he will die for Jesus as a martyr because Jesus has earned something for him. It's eternal life. And he will go with Jesus and be glorified. It changes everything. So remember, 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 Jesus is the one who provides... The glorification. Jesus is the one who provides redemption, reconciliation, salvation. And then in light of what he provides, he calls us to act a certain way as imitators of his love to the point where it should be visible and noticeable because there's nothing like it on earth. So it should be seen as nothing like it on earth. And then it does produce a pretty radical loyalty that can cause us to be brave and loyal to the very end because of what we know is ours in Christ. John 14, it's going to be good. And you know what I'm going to say when we're finishing John 14? John 15, it's going to be good. And you know how it goes. You know how it goes. We should pray now, though. Father, thank you so much for a great Savior who was a loyal Savior, loyal to you and to your plans and purposes, loyal to us as a Savior substitute. And thank you for even the loyalty that comes as a result of Christ. The loyalty we're to have to one another. And the loyalty we are to have even in the face of opposition. Encourage us this week uh, that we might be people who uh, not only hear your word, but are quick to, quick to hear so that we might not object, but embrace it and then seek to live in light of what you call us to do. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.